So, good evening, friends. Good evening, Sangha. It's still, I think, technically an Uposita day, full moon. So, I'd like to start by offering the refuges and precepts. One of the things I appreciate about doing it on these particular days is that we can know, maybe particularly with the full moon, there are millions of people over the course of this 24 hours all around the world who are taking this powerful commitment to non-harming. So we can imagine this worldwide web of people orienting to skillfulness, to kindness, to insight. Okay. Namo tasa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhasa Buddham saranam gachami, Dhamam saranam gachami, Sangam saranam gachami, Dutiampi buddham saranam gachami, Dutiampi dhammam saranam gachami, Dutiampi sangam saranam gachami, Tatiampi buddham saranam gachami, Tatiampi dhammam saranam gachami, Tatiampi sangam saranam gachami. Panati pata veramani sika param samariami Adinadana veramani sika param samariami Avramacharya veramani sika param samariami Musawara veramani sika padam samariyami Sura meriya majapamaratana veramani sika padam samariyami Vikala bojana veramani sika padam samariyami Nacha Gita Wadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Veramani Sikapadam Samariyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani sikha param samariyami Idame silam magapalanyana sa pachayo hotu Saru, saru, saru Thank you. So just a little practicality about sound before we start. I will do my best to remember to keep speaking up, but please wave if I fall into that habit of dropping off. And if you're really struggling, there are some spare seats a little closer, so feel free to come closer. Okay. So this evening I'm going to try and do a few different things with my talk. And the first one is to review the framework of all the practices that we're doing here, just to highlight their purpose, to remember that the goal of this path, everything we're doing here, 
is towards increasing ease and happiness and peace and freedom. Because I know from my own experience of being on these longer retreats, there just are times when we lose our connection. We lose our connection to the passion and the zeal and the love of this path that Brian spoke about so beautifully last night. So I wanted to start with just a pretty quick review of the Four Noble Truths, because these are the core teachings of the Buddha that inform everything that we're doing here. And as a reminder, just to get us started, I'd like to share a passage from the Discourses, translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And I chose this particular phrase because it begins with a reference to an elephant. And I don't know about you, but for me, there's something just appealing and inspiring about elephants. So, the venerable Sariputta said this, Friends, just as a footprint of any living being that walks can be placed within an elephant's footprint, and so the elephant's footprint is declared the chief of them because of its great size. So too, all wholesome states can be included in the Four Noble Truths. In what four? In the noble truth of suffering, in the noble truth of the origin of suffering, in the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, and in the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Now, putting aside the elephant for now, in my own experience, it's very easy to hear this list of four truths and for the mind to just sort of skim over it. Yeah, suffering, suffering, suffering. <laughs> Something about the end of suffering. Yeah, okay, next. Honestly, that's how I used to hear it. Just another numbered list. And I didn't have any understanding, really, of well, what to do with it, how to practice with it. So I wanted to try to simplify these four truths in a way that allows us to explore them very directly in our own experience in meditation. So in the fourth establishment of mindfulness, the very last category in there, it explicitly invites us to practice mindfulness of the four noble truths. But as far as I can remember, in all of my retreat history, I've never been given any instructions about how to actually do that. So I'm going to try and keep it simple to begin with and to focus on just one aspect of the first noble truth and combine it with the first establishment of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the body. Maybe that already sounds a bit too complex, but please just bear with me and I'll try to get to the simple practical part soon. First, just coming back to the first noble truth, I want to unpack a little bit What was the Buddha pointing to here? Because when we hear that truth expressed the way it so often is as, quote, there is dukkha, dukkha being the word that's usually translated as suffering, again, it can sound so simple as to almost be meaningless. The Buddha's just acknowledging dukkha is a fact of life. And the task of this truth is to understand this dukkha, to understand how and why we experience unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. So I'd like to read you the definition from the Buddha of dukkha from that first noble truth. This is translated by Nyanamoli Tara. It says, suffering as a noble truth is this. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, Suffering is the five categories of clinging objects. So, huge amount in that one statement. And we likely will come back to aspects of it in future talks. 
So for this evening, again, trying to keep it simple, I want to land on just the last part of that passage where the Buddha ends his definition of dukkha with a summary. In short, suffering is the five categories of clinging objects. These are also known as the five clinging aggregates or the five aggregates subject to clinging. For those of you who were here for part one, I know the Buddha, that, I mean, you said the Buddha, Greg. <laughs> Greg and the Buddha. <laughs> I'm sure he'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> the Buddha known as Greg already gave a talk on these in part one. So don't worry, I'm not going to go into all of them again now. Just for context, in case this is new for some of you, these clinging aggregates are just five aspects of experience that the Buddha recognized we tend to be reactive to in various ways. There are five aspects of experience that we tend to cling to, to resist, or to identify with, to take personally, to try and create a solid sense of self from. So just for context, what the five are, First is material form, matter, and it includes this body, which is what I'm going to be focusing on tonight. The second is feeling tone, or Vedana. The third is perception, or Sanya. The fourth is volitional mental formations, or Sankara. The fifth is consciousness, or Vijnana. Don't worry if you don't really understand what those different categories are. Again, I'm keeping this for now, framed around the body. And for now, what I want to mostly highlight is the clinging aspect of this. Because the five aggregates in and of themselves, that's not the issue. They're just different ways we experience the world. The problem comes when we cling to those experiences in those various ways. So I'm using this term clinging pretty broadly, to include any reactivity to experience that involves some kind of holding on, gripping, grasping, wanting something to continue. I'm also using it as the Buddha did to refer to how we get caught up in identifying with our experience, taking it personally, having it define me and who I am. I'm also using this term clinging to include any form of resistance, pushing it away, rejecting it, avoiding it, or denying it. So energetically, any kind of stiffening or bracing or pulling away from, rejecting, not wanting something. So clinging here is a kind of an umbrella term for any energetic reaction towards or away from anything. All of those reactions, to some degree, are suffering. And then the opposite of clinging, which is what all of our practice is aiming for, is what I'm calling, (coughs) excuse me, release. So release is about relaxing. So release is about relaxing, it's about letting go, letting be, non-entanglement, non-identification. And we can experience it as ease, as flow, as spaciousness, contentment, equanimity. Those are all skillful states. This release helps skillful states to arise. It's also the fruit of the practice, and it happens on deeper and deeper levels, ultimately leading all the way to nibbana, to the peace of awakening. And this is the, you could say, the liberation through non-clinging, which is the title of Greg's talk from part one. Liberation through non-clinging. Freedom through non-clinging. So what I'm inviting us to do is, in a way, to condense the Four Noble Truths into these two energetic movements. 
And I've been doing this a lot with my hands because that's how I experience this. There's the fundamental experience of clinging, gripping, tightening, holding on, rejecting, resisting on the one hand. And on the other, there's the experience of release, of ease, of peace. Making sense so far? In a way, you can't get much more simple than that. Holding on or letting go. That's pretty much it. Now, the problem with clinging is that it takes us out of the flow of experience. Metaphorically, it gives us a bumpy ride. As some of you know, that's a little bit where the term dukkha comes from. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering. But apparently it has etymology connotations of a bumpy ride, something to do with a wooden cart with a badly fitting wheel. Or I was thinking of the image that Tueri gave us the other night of getting to the grocery store on the rocking chair. <laughs> it's a pretty bumpy ride. So whatever image you use, it's about the friction, the gripping, the clinging, the resistance, not being in harmony, not being in flow. So in a way, it really is that simple. And in case you're skeptical, there's a well-known statement in the discourses that said to summarize all of the Buddha's teachings, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. That's it. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. It's so simple. So radical. And in any moment, including right now, we can contemplate our relationship to what's happening to see in this moment now, is there any trace of clinging or resisting this experience in this moment? though I can't read minds, but it would be interesting to see, even as you're listening to these words energetically, is there a less subtle, just sort of leaning forward, trying to hear or trying to take it in or trying to understand or trying to hold on to a phrase or a meaning? Or is there the opposite, like, oh, not sure about this, just subtly pulling back, not liking, closing down a little? Those are the energies of clinging and resisting. If you did recognize some of that, great. Then you're practicing with the first two noble truths, understanding dukkha and its cause. If you didn't recognize any trace of clinging or resisting, there are two possibilities. One is that you might need to look a little more closely, and the other is you're working with the third noble truth, experiencing some degree of ease, release, peace. So you might just be settled back and listening, taking in the flow of the words and their meaning, and there's no sense of struggle or reactivity at all. So I think it's worth bringing awareness to these two basic energetic movements of clinging and resisting, because they're the core drivers of so much of our reactivity. As you probably noticed in your own experience, they tend to pretty quickly complexify into the hindrances and into all the other afflictive mind states that get in the way of clear seeing. The opposite is also true. The more we can invite release, the more we can invite ease in the body, that supports ease in the mind. And again, as you've probably experienced, because body and mind are interconnected, this sets up a positive chain reaction. Deepening physical relaxation brings deepening mental relaxation. And those two together support deepening samadhi, concentration as Rebecca spoke of the other night. And samadhi works in concert with all the other awakening factors. And together they create a field of powerful, skillful mental states. They create a fertile field from which insights can blossom. 
that whole process starts with, you can probably guess, with mindfulness. So for the rest of the talk, I'd like to zoom in now and just focus on right mindfulness. And within that, to zoom in and focus on just one aspect of mindfulness, the first establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. So now we have the contextual framework. I'd like to explore clinging and release just in relation to the body. And there are two ways that I'd like to look at it. The first is how clinging shows up in the body, the physical effects on the body of clinging and resisting, how that energetic movement impacts the body in coarse and subtle ways. The second is how we cling to the body. In other words, some of the ways that we tend to develop a pretty distorted relationship to our physical bodies, and as a result, experience suffering. And I'll also include a little bit about the experience of release. going to be too rustly? Okay. So let's start with how clinging shows up in the body. When we can simplify the practice into just those two fundamental movements of clinging and release, and as the mindfulness gets more refined, we start to recognize even quite subtle reactions that create tension, tightness, contraction that come whenever we're clinging or resisting something. And when the mindfulness is even more refined, we can train in noticing the opposite, learning to recognize on the most simple bodily level the absence of clinging, the absence of resistance, and how that feels. Usually it's experienced as ease, as relaxation, as openness, as balance, and so on. Now, maybe for some of you that's sounding a little bit abstract in some way. So just let's try and find a a real-life example. Just a simple one from my own retreat experience. One of those nights when I've had a bad night's sleep. For whatever reason, I'm lying awake, I'm restless, finding it hard to fall asleep. Finally, finally, I manage to get to sleep. And it seems like two minutes later, the wake-up bell rings. And it's this reaction, ugh! And I pull the blankets back over my head, and I pull the pillow over my head, and I try and get down under the covers. Pretty gross example, quite literal clinging there, clinging to the blankets, clinging to the pillow. (laughs) And there's resistance. The body curls up, it tightens, it tenses, it braces. It's like trying to physically ward off the sound of the bell, physically push away the coming day. So there's very clear physical energy, and then in the mind, stop that noise. Why are they doing this to me? Who made this schedule? It's torture. (laughs) Sounds like maybe you recognize that. Resistance in the mind. And then desire. There's the desire for sense pleasure, just wanting to stay longer in bed. If I could just lie here for another hour, or maybe two, maybe three So there's clinging and resistance. And then at some point, I recognize it. I just, okay, I've got to do it. I grit my teeth. I force myself out of bed. I stomp down to the meditation hall. I haven't seen any of that tension, tightness, stiffness, heaviness. And because body and mind work together, when I do come into the hall, I sit down. And that energetic residue of clinging and resisting shows up as excellent fuel for all of the hindrances. Aversion, sense, desire, restlessness, boredom, sloth and torpor, doubt, you know, you know them. So I sit there for an hour just battling all of those infamous multiple hindrance attacks. It's suffering. But if my mindfulness had been sharper, the wake-up bell would have rung, I hear it, and I would have noticed that very first contraction 
that very first energy of resistance in the body, in the mind, right there, I could have invited release. Even just physically unclenching the jaw, uncurling the body, softening, because body and mind are so interconnected, the softening of the body supports softening, opening in the mind. And with that spaciousness in the mind, the hindrances can't get their claws into us in the same way. And the whole day probably would have flowed with a lot more ease. And again, the first step in that whole process is mindfulness, specifically mindfulness of the body. Yeah, just to acknowledge for many of us, this is not nearly as simple and easy as it might sound. Dominant culture does not value the body at all. Quite the opposite. So many of us have been acculturated to, at best, completely ignore the body, and at worst, to treat it with contempt, even subtle kinds of violence, as we try to force this poor body to do what we want, and try to make it the way we want it to be, or the way we think it should be. And I'll say more about that later. But I just want to acknowledge that for some people, the first step in mindfulness of the body is to even recognize that there is a body. And actually that's part of the Satipatthana Sutta. There's a kind of a chorus that says, mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And I think perhaps more than ever these days, we need that repeated reminder. There is a body. There is a body. All through the day. If that's all you did for the rest of this retreat, just kept remembering, knowing directly there is this body. That will be excellent practice. And again, simple but not easy. And I've shared with some of you my own challenges with this. Right back in the first intro to meditation course I took, I think it was a six-week course, and every week they'd say something like, just sit quietly and pay attention to the sensations in your body. And every week I'd think, what sensations in the body? (laughs) What are they talking about? I don't have any sensations in my body. I don't even remember how long it took. Maybe it was week four or five. But finally, I felt a twitch in my toe. And there was this wave of excitement. (laughs) It was pretty immediately followed by disappointment and doubt. There was excitement that I finally noticed some kind of sensation. But then disappointment that it was such a mundane experience. Is that what they're talking about? (laughs) And then doubt. How is noticing a twitch in my toes supposed to take me to enlightenment? (laughs) So I had to suspend disbelief, and I had to take on faith what the Buddha was saying, because he was so emphatic about the importance of mindfulness of the body. Here's just one example from the Nguttara Nikaya. There is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. It's a powerful statement, and it runs totally counter to our dominant culture conditioning in relation to the body. But if we can overcome that conditioning, the body offers us a whole other channel of information, a whole other stream of information that is such a necessary resource to come towards ease and freedom. It can take quite some training. And I think of this training as body literacy, the capacity to notice on more and more refined levels what's actually happening in here. And particularly to notice in the context of this exploration where and how we tend to store 
physical tension, the early warning signs of clinging. So in your meditation practice, it's really helpful to start to recognize where for you are those sites, those locations where stress, distress, suffering tends to get stored. And particularly when you recognize informal sitting, often there's a phase where, yes, I would say often, (laughs) definitely often there's a phase where the mind goes off, it gets caught up in some kind of thinking, gets lost, disconnected. Usually when we recognize that, the tendency is to think, oh, I've been thinking, come back to the breath, or come back to the sound, come back to the anchor. Next time you recognize one of those long phases of, in quotation marks, distraction, instead of bringing the mind straight back to the anchor, I invite you just to take a few moments with the body and to really recognize the physical tension and stress that come from thinking. If you're anything like me, you notice there's a slight frown. You likely will notice there's kind of the little muscles around the eyes have got crunched up. There's tension in the forehead. You might notice a subtle gripping in the jaw, the mouth becoming a little tight. Perhaps the shoulders are just a millimeter or two higher. And there's a little stiffness across the chest or in the belly. So just taking a few moments to register, to notice all of that tension. And then this is key, to invite it to release. Because if we can re-establish that ease in the body before we come back to the anchor, generally it's much easier to stay, to stay present because there's some degree of ease. So this is a training in trying to catch the early warning signals or symptoms of clinging and resisting. And the more we can keep releasing them, the deeper the calm, the tranquility, which, as you may remember, those are the proximate causes for happiness to arise. And happiness is the proximate cause for samadhi, for unification of mind. And that samadhi not only feels good, it's powerfully nourishing and healing. And even better, it's a beautiful support for insights to arise. So this is where all of our efforts are heading. But I'd like to circle back now and take a brief look at what gets in the way of that process, what hinders our progress. So I'm going to switch now from looking at clinging in the body to some of the ways that we cling to the body, some of the ways that we mistakenly relate to this body as me, as mine, as who I am. Because the Buddha recognizes as another major source of suffering, getting caught in the delusion that this body is or should be under my control. And with that delusion, we think, therefore, it shouldn't get injured. It should not get sick. It should not age. And it definitely should not die. Now, all of these are grounded in just a basic misperception of this body's true nature. Some of you were at this retreat last year, so you might remember in one of the early days of the retreat, Brian reminded us, we are mammals. We are mammals. And at the time, I laughed, partly because of the way he said it, but partly because it was just funny. And then afterwards, I thought, why is that funny? And why do we need reminding that we're mammals? Again, I think our cultural conditioning, we've been acculturated to ignore, to deny the reality of this flesh and blood, blood and bone body that we live in. And the tragedy of that fundamental disconnect from our, in our, from our organic nature is it often leads to a pretty harmful relationship, not only to this body, but to the greater body of this earth and all the beings in it. 
So based on the mistaken belief that we should be in control of our bodies, people in mainstream society, we tend to spend huge amounts of time, of energy, of money, on all kinds of ultimately futile strategies, desperately trying to make the body how we want it to be, how we think it should be. On one level, this is obvious, trying to make the body always look beautiful and sexually attractive, trying to avoid it from getting sick. And if it does get sick, trying to get it well again as soon as possible, trying to prevent it from aging clinging to youthfulness for as long as possible, unconsciously or unconsciously trying to deny the truth that sooner or later this body is going to die. And these ways of relating to the body, they're all symptoms of delusion. The more tenaciously we cling to them, the more we suffer. Now, Different cultures around the world, they have very different ways of relating to the body. But in the mainstream Western cultures that I've mostly been steeped in, there tends to be a pretty distorted, superficial, skin-deep perception of the body. We objectify our own and others' bodies. We value them based almost totally on visual appearance, according to particular norms of attractiveness, that are mostly created by consumerism and that are mostly impossible for ordinary people to attain. Now, I don't know how that feels for any of you, but for me it's tragic that we value ourselves, we value others, based on the shape and the size and the age and the ability and the color of our bodies, which instead of more meaningful values, like the qualities of our hearts and our minds... I think much of the time this is just the culture we're swimming in, this valuing of external appearance above everything else. But I was fortunate in my own practice quite a few years ago now. I had an opportunity to spend some time in a totally different environment where, at least temporarily, I got to be free of this insidious pressure. So I spent three months volunteering at a meditation center and monastery in Thailand. And that center, the, the accommodation by, by Western standards, was fairly basic. So the rooms were just very small. There was no hot water. There were no flush toilets or no showers. There were no mirrors anywhere. And the work we were doing was pretty physical. It was in the garden. It was repainting the buildings and so on. So we didn't wear our own clothes, we just wore borrowed work clothes, worn out old pants, second-hand t-shirts, and so on. And through that whole three months, we didn't have access to computers or the internet or books or magazines or media of any kind. So I didn't see any advertising for three whole months. I didn't even realize how freeing this was until I got to the airport to leave Thailand. And I was waiting at passport control And I suddenly noticed my mind going out and looking at all the clothes that the other women were wearing and checking out how their hair was styled and kind of makeup they were wearing. And then I started seeing all the advertisements for fragrances and luxury accessories all around me. And I was taking all of that in. And then suddenly I saw my own reflection in a store window. Boom, it was like this tidal wave of comparing mind, just seeing my own image juxtaposed against everyone else's. It was so painful. Because I'd been free of that afflictive state for so long, when it came back, it felt like a form of madness, of insanity, and in some ways it is. You know, we're tyrannized by the advertising industry and capitalism with messages, we're not beautiful enough, we're not young enough, we're not fit enough, we're not stylish enough, we're just fundamentally not good enough. Those are the messages we're bombarded with so that we'll spend more money to try to soothe this ever-present feeling of inadequacy and lack. So I'm just you know, highlighting that to say this is what we're up against. The individual conditioning, family, societal conditioning, the ways that we relate to our body are so powerfully conditioned. 
how do we start to loosen their grip? To learn to see this body with wisdom as it really is. It's impermanent. It's not fully under our control. And it's neither inherently beautiful nor inherently unbeautiful. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha offers us a series of different ways of exploring the body that do help us to develop a kinder and wiser relationship to it. Bhante Buddha Rakita briefly mentioned these the other night. So in the first establishment of mindfulness, we're invited to know the body in terms of the four elemental qualities of earth, water, fire, air. And Dara led us in a guided meditation, exploring that a few days ago. There's also the invitation to contemplate the body in terms of its anatomy. And then there's a whole sequence of contemplations that imagine the body after death in different stages of decay. Maybe we'll save those for later. (laughs) Maybe I thought actually Halloween might be a good time. (laughs) No promise. What I'd like to focus on, just briefly, is the contemplation of the body in terms of its anatomy. And here we're invited to bring awareness to all the different organic aspects of the body, starting with the skin and then gradually moving inwards to include the organs and then the substances within and around those organs. And in this part of the sutta, there's a whole list of different aspects of the body that we can contemplate. And this list, it's not intended to be a full catalog of every aspect of the body's anatomy. It's just a kind of a representative selection of parts. And it starts with those that are most solid, such as the bones. Then it goes into those that are a bit less solid, such as flesh and marrow. And then it ends with liquids like saliva and urine. So I'll just briefly read you the list. And as you listen to it, just notice if there's any subtle clinging or resisting as you hear each of these terms. So it says, practitioners, a contemplative contemplates this body bounded by the skin, up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the head, as being full of many kinds of substances, saying, in this body there are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, small intestines, bowels, the stomach and its contents, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, oils, saliva, mucus of the nose, lubricants of the joints, and urine. So I wonder what it's like just to hear these different aspects of the body just named in that very matter-of-fact way. For me, after I got over some initial kind of resistance, it was really helpful. It just showed how much I unconsciously tried to deny the biological nature of this body how much I try to censor out all of the aspects of the body that by mainstream values are conventionally unattractive. And in contrast to the effort that all of that editing takes, it can be a relief just to acknowledge, yep, this body is organic. 
It does produce bile and phlegm and pus and sweat and so on. That's its nature. And it's not my fault. I'm not in control of that. So each time I come into contact with this list, I'm always fascinated how the bodily products in there. You know, usually we, in mainstream society, mainstream society values productivity. But when it comes to the body, it does not at all value productivity. I don't think there are any bodily products that are socially acceptable in this society. The opposite. Most of them are a source of humiliation or even shame. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to get rid of these unwanted products. Now, in all of this, I'm not saying, therefore, you're supposed to just let it all hang out and neglect hygiene and neglect our health. We definitely want to take care of this body. It's precious. Apart from anything else, it's our practice vehicle. And the purpose of these contemplations is to balance out the tendency to relate to the body unskillfully, without a fascination or disgust or control, and instead to find a wiser and kinder and more compassionate attitude to this vulnerable human body. So just coming back to this theme of clinging and release, the more we can release that clinging to the belief that this body is me, it's mine, it's who I am, the easier it is to respect it, to find kindness for it, to care deeply for it, without getting caught in attachment. And the ease that comes from having a wiser relationship to the body supports a well-being that's independent of the actual state of its physical condition. And that well-being supports all the other skillful qualities, contentment and calm and clarity that lead the heart and mind to freedom. So just to close, I'd like to share an experience I had that's in this terrain during my first three-month retreat here. And I just realized that was exactly 20 years ago. And at that time, I was pretty new to practice. And I had quite a bit of unconscious and at times painfully conscious self-aversion. And towards the end of the retreat, I started to notice that each time I came into the room, I was consciously avoiding looking in the mirror. And even when in the morning I was brushing my teeth, I wasn't looking in the mirror. Every time my eyes went anywhere near that mirror, they would just divert away. And at some point I recognized this and I decided instead of just perpetuating that habit, I would try to explore it, even to challenge it a little bit. So I decided to do a... I made a determination that I was going to take a sitting period and just stand in front of that mirror for 45 minutes and just notice every reaction in the body, the heart, the mind. And I'd say at first it was one of the hardest practices I've ever done. In the first few minutes, I just wanted to bolt from the room. But I'd made that determination. And so I stayed there with the resistance in the body and made space for it, tried not to feed the reactivity in the mind. I kept trying to open up and orient the heart to kindness, to compassion. And every time my eyes would dart away, I just gently brought them back. And as I continued the practice of just standing there and trying to keep releasing all those different reactions of clinging and resistance, to my surprise, I started to be able to just keep my gaze more steady on that image in front of me. And I started to know it as just a human face was no longer my face. And I saw warmth and tenderness in the eyes that were looking back at me. And as I kept looking at this face, sounds strange, but in my mind's eye, it started to morph. And it started to become the face of an elderly Asian man, still with those kindly eyes. And as I kept looking, this man disappeared, and eventually it was replaced by a young child, and then an older woman. 
and then the face of a teenager, and just this parade of different human beings appearing. So many varieties of human beings morphing into each other, but the eyes of every one of them shone with that same kindness and care. So whoever they were, whoever we are, whoever I am, all of us, we share this capacity for embodied awareness that supports release, the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So may all of us know this shift from clinging to release. And may we find the deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment or two. Let the words dissolve. It's time now for walking, and then I'll be back here at nine for chanting. And I thought tonight we can continue with the Karaniya Metta Sutta for those who'd like to join. See you then.